You guys want to take a tour? That's Angel Malel, showing me and my classmates around the place she grew up. See that kid right there? That's the traditional like Tanzanian school uniform, where it's blue skirt, white shirt, and the sweater that's based on the flag. We're taking in the sounds. I just wake up in the morning and listen to all the sounds. It's like crazy. Goats, sheep, cows, and everything. They love the goats. We're taking in the sights. And the view. I love the view. Especially like Mount Kilimanjaro. Like, you don't get to see Mount Kilimanjaro every day. And the smells. Plants here just, your nostrils are going to go crazy. <laughs> mm, they smell so good. The last group told me they can smell, um, what is it called? Mint. Mint. Yeah. mint. We yeah. were stepping on mint on the way oh, in. Oh, seriously? Yeah. You guys have to show me mint. You don't even know. The... I just had some basil. You did? Yeah. Wait, what the? Maybe I should tell my mom we have mint and we don't know. We're in a little rural Maasai village at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. And also, you can walk for five minutes and see about 10 different cultures. I'm here to learn about those cultures with the Ethnography Field School through Fort Lewis College. And then this is the well. That's where they dug over there that's fenced off and the solar. Living in the village, Angel was no stranger to hard work. Our daily life included waking up, going to fetch water, coming back, doing laundry. Next thing you know, the water is out. You have to go back again and make a second round. And by the way, fetching water, it's like an hour, two hour, you know, adventure. Then you do it again in the evening and you come back. And that's, you know, you haven't even began talking about firewood. So you still have to go get firewood, come back. So it's just a lot of work for the women. I remember when I first got to the States, people would notice my neck was just so strong. And I'm like, that's from carrying water. That's from carrying firewood. I mean, it's just, it's crazy the amount of work that we did in a single day. Like by the time you go to sleep at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., you're like dead. With all this hard work to keep up with the necessities of life, education and school takes on so much meaning. School was her way towards a life with less struggle and a hope to carry her family out as well. For Angel's sisters and her, it meant the difference between being able to advocate and work to support themselves or being married in the village for her dad to earn a dowry. When I was younger, educating kids was just becoming popular, especially for Maasai girls. Education wasn't really a priority. And it was only if your dad could afford and wanted to that a girl was able to go to school. So basically my mom's begged my father to educate all of us because my father had 11 girls and five boys. so. He had to educate some of us. We couldn't all just be married off because that would just be a lot of responsibility on his part. So after listening to my mom's, he decided to educate most of the girls. But education in the village was a little lackluster. Our primary school in the village was very basic. It was just a small government school in the village. It taught in Swahili. I don't really remember spending a lot of time in the classroom. It just wasn't that serious really. We'd only be in the classroom for a few hours and then the rest of the day would just be us playing in the fields and then going back home. So it wasn't really rigorous. We weren't really learning much. One day while she was studying at school, a man she'd never met before was there, an American. When she met him, everything would change. I would say he's, he's my best friend and then my dad because we just hang out like buddies and I literally tell him everything in my life. It's just it's amazing. It's a bond that I literally cannot describe. One of the things he would do is 
sneak Fantas to me because at a young age in the village, getting a soda is, I mean, it was just like the most amazing thing because we didn't hardly ever drink sodas. So the fact that he was sneaking Fantas to me during lunch when other kids didn't have it just meant a lot to me. And he would take me out for fresh air whenever I didn't feel well. He would create little games like throwing rocks at a, I don't know, a plant or something. And so we just started bonding and we just had the best time. And I was just looking forward to going to school because that meant I got to see Tony and he quickly became my best friend. He would help her through school and with her health problems. He found out that I was sick. I had terrible teeth. It was not great. And so... He started to just do little things that really made me care about him and see him as an, a really important figure in my life. Two months later, he told me he wants to meet my family. And so during winter break, we would have to walk back to our village and see our families. But this year we didn't have to because Tony was the one driving the school van. So he drove my sister and I to our village and everybody was just in awe and just surprised. Like, why is Angel and Rebecca coming home in a school van? And so everybody just fell in love with Tony. We celebrated Christmas. I mean, it was almost like the missing piece of our family had just arrived. And so it really was amazing. And Tony was only there for six months. And so when his six months were up in the following year in March, he traveled back to the United States. He was just constantly worrying about me. And he almost felt like he left a piece of his happiness back in Tanzania. Soon enough, Tony was doing everything he could to bring Angel back to the United States and help with her education. He actually scheduled another six months to come to Tanzania. And that's when he started the process to bring me to the States. He did all the government paperwork, which I, I really didn't know. My parents knew, and it wasn't really hard for me to decide whether or not I wanted to come to America. I mean, who doesn't want to come to America? It was a very easy decision. He surprised me at school and basically said, we're going to America tomorrow. And I was like, okay, like, what do you say? It was just, it was a decision that I already made up a long time ago without even knowing that he was working on the process. Two years later from when we met in 2010, we were able to come to the United States in October, 2012. And he just, he just took me in. Seeing the United States was so different than being in Tanzania, it was hard to explain to her family. Well, it's just so weird because America is so different. Like, everything is just completely different. I mean, how the heck do you explain stuff like Target? I don't know. They kind of just try to compare. How is the market, like, over there? And I'm like, we have supermarkets instead of an actual outdoor market where everything is on the ground. So I just try my best to explain it by comparing to things they're used to here. But it's it's... It's hard. I just don't have the vocabulary to explain America for what it is. But she was bright. She caught on quickly, learned the language, and continued working just as hard in her studies. All through her learning, she saw the differences between the privileges of American kids and her birth family in Tanzania. In high school, she was finally ready to do something about it. I have been like helping my village for the previous eight years. And it just kind of got overwhelming because it was there was a lot of projects that I wanted to do. There was a lot of people that I wanted to donate money to, like especially the women, just for simple things like food or even accessing water or tuition for their kids. In school, she was also focused on sports, a talented softball player. It was after I lost my softball regional championship. That was so sad, but... She had more time to focus on something important to her 
With the help of Tony and the urging of her friends, she started a nonprofit called One Love. My friends were actually the ones who were like, you do so much to help your village, and we feel like if you start a nonprofit, donations can go to one specific name, and you can use those donations to help the village. And mm -hmm. at first I was like, I'm in high school. It kind of sounded like a big thing. Like, I'm not about to start a big nonprofit. But then I knew the only person that would kind of boost my confidence or tell me straight was my adoptive dad. So that same night, I came home. And trust me, I have a lot of crazy ideas all the time. So he's kind of used to it. So he was really ready for this. I was like, what do you think about starting a nonprofit? And usually with my crazy ideas, he's like, okay. But then with this one, <laughs> with this one, he was like, okay, let's actually get started. They began with fundraising campaigns for water and education projects. It took off quickly. With everyone in her new school and her adopted community knowing her passion and ability, they were more than willing to help her and all the people in her village. I knew everybody pretty well in the village, so I knew who is capable financially and who's not. So it's kind of an easy process to pick the kids. And then it kind of just blew off. I don't know what happened, but people were just donating. And so with the overwhelming donations that we received, we were like, well, let's get some of these projects done. Then she headed back home to work on water access projects. So yeah, the biggest one we started was water. We started to ask questions. How can we access the water? How will this help the villages? And then just little by little, we added the water, the clean drinking water. Before that, the women would walk like a good two, three miles to go get water. So doing this saves them time. Well, so for the clean drinking water, we just had to talk with a government official. And the positive thing is we actually had a, a pipeline that was running through the village. And yet they didn't really make that clean drinking water accessible to the people. So the clean drinking water was kind of easy because it was already running through the village. So I just had to tap into the pipeline and kind of bring it up and you know make it accessible to the people. So the only hurdle for that one was the government. But then they didn't have a problem just because it didn't cost them any more. Her family and everyone else in her village joyously thanked her and were so proud of her effort and her accomplishment. I have had a lot of people from the village come to me personally and thank me for the project just because, you know, it is bringing change. Then I hear comments from people like, thank God this water is here or this water is helping me plan my new garden. Like now I have money because of this water. Or they're like, thank goodness this water is here. Now I can go do something else. It's it just like, it saves so much time and so much responsibility that they can just kind of relax. And it's definitely less stress. As water access became easier, she noticed that the women and children had more time and energy to put towards other things, like building businesses, focusing on education, playing like kids should, and socializing with the community. So every single project that we do, helps the women, you know, their lives a little easier because it just, it just saves a lot of time. I mean, the men don't know just how hard it is for the women. And the women were just having to do so much work every day. The clean drinking water, the four hours a day that we had to put, you know, to fetching water, the women now can use that time for little businesses. Like, it's crazy. Every single woman now has a business. When I was growing up, no woman was allowed to have a business, and they also didn't have time. Now, with both access to the clean drinking water and the well, they have 
a lot of time to do so many things. They have a lot of time to spend with their children. They have a lot of time to do their own businesses. They have a lot of time to socialize. It's not like how it used to be when I was young. And things have changed for the kids in the village too. Well, the thing with the Maasai life is, you know, the girls are the ones that are in charge of, you know, fetching water, firewood, all these things. So if the water is already accessible, then if a child comes home from school, then they can use that time for homework. They can use that time to just play as a kid. They can use that time to socialize. They can use that time to maybe help their moms with their business. So it really it does tie in with education, especially because now they have the water to drink and now they have electricity to do homework. So it's it, it's weird. It all ties in together. Even the men who are the leaders of the village would come to Angel and thank her for the work she was doing. I've even had a lot of men come up to me and be like, you're an inspiration to our children because they see you doing these projects and giving back, that they are now really working hard on education so they can come back later on and help. They'll come back and do more projects and help their families even 10 times more. Angel sees access to education as an important step in improving the community, and her projects are making that more available. I, I kind of knew the things that they didn't have, like they didn't have water, they didn't, they didn't have electricity. But the good thing about education is you just pay the tuition once and then that's it. So people were just donating. People were like, I'll sponsor a child, you know, sign me up until they finish college, just sign me up. It kind of just like astonished me. I was like, what the heck? These people don't even know these kids. And I don't even know if most of them will ever travel to go see these kids. And yet they wanted to help their education every year. So that just really touched me. And same with the kids that were educating. Like education is, that's the biggest tool we can give any kid. With even more work and more time, Angel and One Love completed another water project. They built a huge well to bring water to their plants and animals. This is a really big deal because in Maasai life, your herd is your wealth. But then for the well, I could pay a person to dig as many holes running different directions so as many people have access to that water. After the well was done, we made three points of access, but it's all water that's coming from the well. So the people who lived on this side have access, or behind me, on to my right, to my left, like everybody has access to that water. But there were some disagreements with the government to get this project done. They had trouble obtaining rights to dig and own the water that fills the well because the Tanzanian government has a different idea of ownership from the Maasai village. If you want to dig a well according to the Tanzanian government, it has to be owned by an individual. But most of the Maasai villages manage water and rights collectively. The well was a little bit more challenging just because the government doesn't really want nonprofits to like dig a well for the community. The water was very close to where I live, which actually worked out because my dad was the owner of the property. So we can dig and say it's water for an individual, even though it's not water for an individual. <laughs> so it, I don't know, we always kind of have to find solutions to go around restrictions or the guidelines. I don't know if you know much about the Maasai, but it's not really that positive when it comes to, you know, the Maasai people and the government, because the government is always forcing the Maasai people or evicting them. So it's it's really not a great partnership between our culture and the government. The villages talk about it and the tribes talk about it, but at the end of the day, the government decides everything. 
This is not the first time or the most damaging time that the Maasai tribe has come at odds with the government. For decades, there have been forced evictions from traditional lands in the name of conservation. These evictions have come sometimes through force and sometimes through revoking rights to grazing water or agriculture. These conflicts are ongoing and in some areas very heated. When I heard this reporting, I was immediately reminded of tribal conflicts in my own backyard. Here in the American Southwest, local tribes, including Navajo, Ute, Paiute, Hopi, and Pueblos of New Mexico have had long histories of conflict with the government. Where the U.S. has and continues violent cultural attacks through stealing land, forcible eviction, and continued removal of water and land rights. I'm new to this area, and I feel like a student of the cultures of the Southwest, in the same way that I was a student of the cultures of Tanzania for that period. For me, learning about these conflicts, historical but ongoing, the parallels are obvious and disturbing. But there are people who can activate change through their efforts, in the same way that Angel has, and continues to, in her backyard. Now, Angel's studying for a media degree, and works behind the camera to show the world what life is like in the place where she grew up, the place she loves. So I, I kind of just want people to walk away from my media feeling like, okay, wow, like I, these people are happy. Like I, I want to help them and this is what they have and this is what they don't have. You know, I don't want them coming in and being like, wow, all Africans are poor. We should, you know, we should tackle this problem because that's not true, you know. She thinks media is an important tool to share the struggles and joys of her family and tribe. Yeah, so that's actually my thing. You touched on it perfectly. We should, you know, we should always represent the actual fact because, like, I know a lot of nonprofits appeal to the emotional side. And maybe if they were documenting something about Tanzania, they would document kids wearing dirty clothes, you know, just looking very, you know, malnourished and hungry and... And so that's not really my goal. My goal is to show the happy side, to show how these projects are affecting the people. Like I want the people to see the women smiling and having fun while they're, you know, planting their gardens or making their beads or even just doing laundry. It's just I I am more on the happy side of things. I feel like that draws people to helping the villages even more. Yeah, we've been able to do all these projects because of the media, so it's definitely important. I asked Angel how she would want to be presented in a media project to more accurately represent life in the village. I would say Angel Molero you know, grew up in a beautiful Maasai village filled with laughter and joy and all that, but they have a few things that, you know, in order to live as a human, you need water and food and all that. So we got to make that accessible to them. So that's really why I want to just depict the correct type of media. Because it's kind of hard for someone who's only been in Tanzania to explain a project to people in the U.S. and make them understand. So definitely having both perspectives has helped me with the success of these projects. I love connecting the people who are donating to the projects that they have done, you know. And also I love connecting people who haven't donated yet but after seeing what other people have done, then they're willing to donate because they're like, okay, they're actually, they're legit. And so I have actually done a lot of filming this summer. I filmed my brothers planting a garden and I also filmed the difference that the well is making. I filmed the women washing clothes, you know, just by the side of their house. 
I filmed a lot of things that just had to do with the water. The cows drinking the water. I took photographs of the well tanks, you know, with Mount Kilimanjaro behind them. So just, I took a lot of photos and videos. Once I bring that footage out here, the people are like, okay, yeah. My money went exactly to what they said it was going to go to. Yeah. Today, Angel and One Love have ongoing projects in her village and hope to expand to more Maasai lands improving conditions through water, education, and business opportunities. The thing about our projects is there's always an expansion of each one, especially like electricity ended here. I would love to ex ex extend it to like more families that way. And same with the water and like the well, we, I, I would love to dig more wells, but it's just so expensive. I mean, I would love one love to get to be so big to the point where I can just help other villages, but we haven't gotten a chance to like get out of this village yet. We're still working on this one. Because there are always a lot more villages, you know. Like, this is just one village out of a thousand. Like, there's always a lot of work to, to be done. The projects are great, but if, if they're not, if they don't know how to, like, maintain it for a long time, then what's the purpose of it? And Angel's biggest dream? To build a school, yeah. I want to build a school that is dedicated to really helping the Maasai people, you know, just kind of boost them up, but... Any child can attend. I just, I want one specific school dedicated to the Maasai people. Back in the day, they just used to educate boys. It was only like a few years, probably like around 10 years ago that they started educating girls. So it wasn't that long ago. You mean like just when you were starting? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Can you believe it? It really worked out. Sometimes we just end up in the right place at the right time. I know, honestly. There's a lot more to be done. And to learn more about Angel's work in her nonprofit and to donate, visit onelove.org. That's the number one, L-O-V-E dot O-R-G.